Rock Science. Uh, today I'm joined with author Steve Silverman. Uh, he wrote a book in 2015 called Neurotribes, The Legacy of Autism and the Future of Neurodiversity. And it's been getting a lot of really positive press, and uh, I, I really enjoyed it. Uh, welcome to the show, Steve. Thank you so much. I'm honored to be here. So to open it up, uh, could you tell us first uh, what is autism? Mm, that's a very pithy question. Um, well, autism is a condition that is primarily genetic, although, although there may be some epigenetic factors involved, but it definitely runs in families. And uh, it presents itself as um, a series of challenges in social interactions. So um, autistic people often have a hard time making sense of the uh, body language and tone of voice of non-autistic people, and that's an important point, which I'll expand on later, um, in real-time social interactions. So <clears throat> when non-autistic people get together, they're constantly sending each other these subtle signals with body language, eye contact, tone of voice, snarkiness, um, you know, and these uh, little signals sort of create a social bond between, you know, the speaker and listener, both speakers. And autistic people often have a hard time making sense of those um, signals in real time, particularly if there is competing input from other sensory sources. Um, so many autistic people struggle with various forms of sensory sensitivity. So they can be easily overwhelmed by loud noises or flashing lights or crowded rooms or um, stuff like that. Um, other autistic people, on the other hand, seek out intense sensory stimulation. So one thing to remember is that autistic people are more different from each other than non-autistic people are because non-autistic people are generally comfortable in a, you know, this kind of narrow band of, uh, sensory stimulation and, you know, it's, it's, it's all okay. But a non-autistic person may find themselves overwhelmed in like, uh, you know, suddenly if they're on the street in New York and there's, you know, tons of construction noise and, and they're in the meantime, they're trying to follow your conversation. Um, autistic people often have, um, striking gifts in certain areas. And I'm not talking about, you know, rare, quote-unquote, savants. Um, you know, obviously there are some autistic people who have um, talents that are so uncanny that they're almost unbelievable, like the um, black autistic artist in England named Stephen Wiltshire, who was able to take a 20-minute helicopter flight over the island of Manhattan and then spend the next several days drawing a very faithful, very detailed picture of New York uh, that he pretty much, you know, installed into flash memory, more or less. Right, right. I've seen videos on the internet of this type of savant um, autistic. Right. So that's amazing. But the thing is that, um, you know, savants like that are, you know, properly considered sort of rare, but many autistic people have um, talents that don't rise to that level exactly, but that are very interesting. For instance, more autistic people than non-autistic people have perfect pitch, which is the ability to to 
judge uh, a musical note uh, without hearing any reference tones. Um, Many autistic people have excellent sort of concrete memories um, so that, uh, you know, many, many autistic kids are able to repeat dialogue from their favorite TV shows or movies um, verbatim. and so they're, you know, they're autistic savants, but they're also, uh, you know, kind of savant-like talents that are more common among some autistic people. At the same time, um, there are some very serious challenges that come along with autism as well. For instance, many autistic people are uh, also intellectually disabled, although I would say we don't know exactly how many because i think iq tests are not a very good way of judging intelligence in autistic people um because they're very oriented towards the way neurotypical brains work um but another very serious problem for autistic people particularly those with intellectual disability is epileptic seizures um which often come on in uh teenage years so uh you know, autism is, you know, it's generally described as a disorder, although I avoid that word because I don't claim to know what the order of the universe is supposed to be. Um, but, you know, that was, you know, that's definitely a, there's an implicit judgment in that word. So I generally use words like condition, you know, which are more, um, you know, have less implicit bias in them. Um, but it's it's a constellation of traits and behaviors that um, are quite common, actually. You know, for, for decades, we've had this mistaken, um, very pervasive belief that autism is rare. And that was because of a series of decisions and um, historical developments that really is my book, Neurotribes. That- I really enjoy the the scope of history that sort of is fleshed in through the through the book. Um, it was it was a lot of stuff that I didn't realize, but also it also seems to bring to light some of the current trends in autism. I can see how uh, you know books about parenting now, even if they don't maybe explicitly mention autism, still are influenced by things like toxic parenting syndrome and so forth. Yep. Yep. I'm very glad to hear you say that because one of the changes that I went through while I was writing the book, I mean, I approached the subject of autism as a science writer. Um, I don't have an autistic child. Uh, I'm not a parent. I'm not autistic myself. So those are usually the entry points to the whole subject, you know. And when, you know, when some people ask me why I wrote my book, there's this funny implicit assumption that like if you didn't have to think about autism, you wouldn't, you know? And so it's like, if you don't have a family, like family member, like why are you writing about this? But I was approaching it as a science writer. And one of the things that um, I wrestled with at the beginning was like, how am I going to keep up with the state of autism research? Because it's constantly changing and, theories that, you know, are sort of the toast of the field for, you know, a year or so, like tend to go away. And then you find out that, well, those studies were never replicated, you know. But what happened was, as I dug into autism history, I discovered that the basic timeline of autism's discovery, 
as it's been reiterated in thousands of textbooks and Wikipedia, was incorrect. And that if you understood the correct timeline, which you could only do by like digging up these documents that I found and having them translated from the German and um, finding papers that have been buried or forgotten, um, if you understood the correct timeline, you understood very easily why there was a dramatic and seemingly alarming spike in prevalence estimates beginning in the 1990s. Um, and, uh, you know, what I found was that autism was mistakenly under the prevalence of autism was mistakenly underestimated for decades because the field was sort of controlled by this one guy, Leo Connor, who claimed to discover autism in America in the 1940s. Uh, and that if you knew more about what actually happened and the conflicts that he actually, you know, found himself in and the, for instance, I'll give you, I'll give you an example. Um, many autistic people were diagnosed not with autism in the 50s and 60s, but with something called childhood schizophrenia. We now know that childhood onset schizophrenia is in fact very, very rare. Those kids were autistic. But there were so many diagnoses of childhood schizophrenia in American institutions in the 50s and 60s that it was considered an epidemic. Uh, and, you know, so what happened was eventually the diagnostic criteria for childhood schizophrenia were imported wholesale into autism research. And then that became the epidemic, you know. So thing, historical things like that. Uh, really help explain where the autistic people were in previous generations. Yeah, I I actually had a specific question concerning that, and that was about the DSM criteria for autism. So you mentioned uh, imported wholesale from you know childhood schizophrenia syndrome into this DSM criteria, and it's interesting to me because one could say that that is the point where. Um, the modern autism epidemic is starting to be realized, right? Because now we have this word autism to define this set of individuals. But at the same time, this is allowing access to all of these individuals to different types of um, mental health care, which is, a, I guess it's not an entirely good infrastructure still for mental health in general in America. But, but can you just sort of uh, maybe give your thoughts on that, on the DSM? Like, was it overall a good thing in sort of the history of autism, or do you think that it could have been dealt with um, in a slightly different way for better results? Well, you know, one of the things that happened was that the DSM, uh, in its very, you know, the first and second and even third edition, was a very marginal document. Um, what happened, I believe it was in the DSM 3 was that this guy named Robert Spitzer realized that um, psychiatry itself was dying in part because of the uh, introduction of um, pharmaceuticals, you know, that could control psychosis. And suddenly the cultural position of psychiatrists was very challenged by developments in the field. And so he aimed to revamp the um, DSM into a document that would be used widely and not just been kept on a dusty shelf in mental institutions, which is pretty much the, the fate of the first two editions. Um, interestingly enough, Robert Spitzer 
um, I, I hope I'm saying his name right. I'm, uh, I'll, uh, yeah, uh, he, he, you can look it up in my book, but he himself had many autistic traits, which is pretty interesting because one of the traditional strengths of what Hans Asperger called autistic intelligence is in creating uh, logical, logical taxonomies, really. Um, and so the DSM is, you know, a sort of internally consistent taxonomy of mental illness. Um, so, you know, the DSM, uh, the first couple of editions were the, uh, you know, the bad, underestimated, um, blaming parents type of uh, framing of autism. But then what happened was that the inflection point was that in the 70s, um, a woman named Lorna Wing, who is a cognitive psychiatrist in England, uh, who herself was the mother of a profoundly disabled autistic girl named Susie, uh, and who knew how hard it was to raise such a child with virtually no resources whatsoever, um, you know, no special ed classes, no, you know, like parents were literally told to let their kid play in the garden with a ball, like for the rest of their lives, you know, if not to be put in a mental institution. Um, she was asked by a public health official to estimate the prevalence of autism in a suburb of London called Camberwell. And she and her research assistant, Judith Gould, went out and looked for people with autistic traits. And what she found was that there were many, many, many more of them and in a much broader range of clinical presentations than the prevailing model of autism, which was uh, traceable to Leo O'Connor, that guy I mentioned earlier, um, that there were many more kinds of autism and de varying degrees of autism. So she came up with the notion of the spectrum. And so the, the spectrum was really installed in the DSM uh, in two uh, sort of major revisions in 1986 and then in 1994. And uh, she also introduced the concept of Asperger's syndrome. Everybody thinks that Hans Asperger discovered Asperger's syndrome, but that's not true. What Hans Asperger discovered with his colleagues in Vienna in the 1930s is what we would now call the autism spectrum. Um, but Lorna came up with that term because parents had been so burned by being blamed for their children's autism based on another theory of Leo Connor's uh, refrigerator parenting, um, that uh, they were more ready to accept a diagnosis that did not contain the word autism because the word was so stigmatizing for autistic people and their parents. Um, so she, you know, floated the concept of Asperger syndrome. It was widely adopted to describe kids who didn't have language delay or who were chatty, um, but still had trouble with social interactions. And, you know, as we all know, um, diagnoses like Asperger syndrome and another uh, category called PDD-NOS, which stands for pervasive developmental disorder, not, not otherwise specified, those became incredibly popular diagnoses. Um, and it was because there were so many undiagnosed autistic people out there. This is, I mean, this is interesting because that idea that uh, these diagnoses 
fit a lot of individuals. Um, but but I don't think there it doesn't seem to be you know it doesn't seem to be as simple as um, you know regular exercise um, you know staying healthy eating the right foods uh, like these are these are like personality traits that somehow become disruptive in society and yet we don't have this infrastructure to deal with it <laughs> what yeah what what That's what exactly what, true. what does future society have to think about in order to make sure that, um, I, I mean, I think that this is why the word neurodiversity is so powerful here, right? Because, you know, we have a lot of arguments for diversity, right? So, like, why not extend it into this realm? Like, what do we have to do to to make sure that we can accommodate sort of the differences in in the human mind? Well, the main thing, the main thing that we have to do is to get rid of the idea that autism is a historical aberration and a, you know, sort of byproduct of the toxic modern world. And even though Andrew Wakefield's thoroughly debunked theory that the MMR vaccine causes autism, uh, even though that's been, you know, deservedly thrown away, the hangover of that idea is that autism is a historical aberration caused by something. So if you look in the newspaper, every week there's a new something. You know, it's Wi-Fi or it's pesticides or it's antidepressants in the water supply or it's something. And one of the main reasons why I wrote my book was because the something that caused the alarm spike in diagnoses was not some factor in the modern world. There was always a tremendous amount of undiagnosed autism that was, uh, you know, not on the radar of clinicians because they were looking for it in the wrong ways and in the wrong places. And eventually, you know, we came around with the changes that Lorna Wing suggested. And um, so now we know what to look for. Um, but still there's this belief that, well, you know, like imagine if we treated physical disability by saying, who cares about wheelchair ramps and accessible bathrooms Someday science will enable everyone to walk, you know, like that's how we've been treating autism, you know, and so we've invested hundreds of millions of dollars. This is not a trivial amount of money into uh, sort of genetic fishing expeditions looking for, you know, candidate genes in the human genome that, that may contribute to autism. We've been excellent at that job. We have found more than uh, more than 600, between 600 and 1,000 candidate genes that, you know, uh, network somehow and then play some role in individual cases of autism. But we have not found, like, the autism gene because it doesn't exist because autism is a network effect caused by the interaction of multiple genes. And so um, what then? What are we doing to help autistic people now and uh, the families of people with autism now? The answer is not much. There, there are very few uh, transition programs once kids stop getting early intervention and the services that they now get in uh, grade school once they graduate high school. There's nothing. Family, families describe it as, quote, unquote, falling off a cliff because there's there are just no services and you know it's very difficult for the parents of 
you know, people who eventually become autistic teenagers and adults to find appropriate housing. Um, and, and it's very difficult for autistic people to find employment because our current recruitment strategies, even in fields where um, autistic people can do well, like high tech, uh, our recruitment strategies have so many forms of implicit bias towards neurotypicals. Like if you do a, um, uh, if you do a interview, you're supposed to, you know, make strong eye contact and firm handshake and, you know, really sell yourself. Well, making strong eye contact, offering a firm handshake and really selling yourself. Those are all things that many autistic people really struggle to do well, you know, but there are companies like this giant software corporation called SAP that are now inventing ways of recruitment that draw on traditional areas of autistic strength and that include um, building forms of support into the employment situation where autistic people can thrive. And we're also figuring uh, ways of uh, creating accommodations in the classroom. And I'm talking about mainstream classrooms, not just special ed or whatever, so that autistic people can thrive in a, in a real mainstream setting. And um, that's good in so many different ways because not only is it better for the autistic people, but it's also better for the non-autistic people who learn that disability is a part of life, you know. And so if, you, if there's a kid in your classroom who's in a wheelchair, it's like instead of saying, ugh, you know, it's a, that person's handicapped, you know, it's like you just realize, well, if you end up in a wheelchair, which, by the way, many of us do for various reasons, you know, society will make a space for you. And uh, so that's the paradigm shift that, nerd, that the word neurodiversity represents. That's great. It definitely seems that the road is long in this sense. But uh, maybe through sort of changing minds, uh, we can hope to get closer to a more uh, egalitarian vision of social support systems. Yeah, absolutely. And if you think about it, you know, I mean, it's like sometimes I have autistic people or their families come to me and they say, like, well, you know, it's such a long road. Like, we've made so little progress. You know, how can you even have hope? Well, you know, I can tell you, you know, I have a condition that was that was described as a mental illness in the DSM until I was in high school, and that condition was called homosexuality. And I am now legally and very happily married and supported by my by both of our families and my community. And that happened in my lifetime very quickly in terms of legal marriage. You know, so I think once you create the um, sort of uh, once you lay the groundwork for a major societal paradigm shift and people realize that the stuff that you're talking about actually applies better to the real world in more practical ways than the previous paradigm, I think social change can come very, very quickly. So that's what gives me hope. That sort of just made me think, um, I, I uh, listened to a lecture and I was talking about the school system being very uh, regimented, right? We're se segregated by age and then pushed through sort of in successive waves. And it sounds like that's one of the, like sometimes that can be difficult for autistic people or who, 
anybody who's struggling with their educational experience, right? Because you fall off that bandwagon of being pushed through in the different waves, and now what are you? You don't have a status, <laughs> right? So how do they slot you back in? And again, like seeing, just trying to make another connection into the book, like seeing how, you know, it was thought of autism, or it was thought that autism had to be overcome before people could enter into a regular education system. And like that doesn't seem to be quite the approach that uh, society will have to take if, if we want to get serious and sort of. That's exactly true. And, you know, that's um, a very clear example of a personal evolution in that regard is what happened with a woman named Temple Grandin, who is, you know, probably the most famous autistic adult in the world. She's a leading industrial designer for the livestock industry. Um, and when she first came out with her autobiography in the late 80s, which was called Emergence, she was presented as a, quote-unquote, recovered autistic child. And um, she very – I interviewed her for Neurotribes. And she very quickly discovered that she was not recovered, that she was still very autistic, but furthermore, that her gifts in her work, which brought her to the – top of her field were not in spite of her autism but because of it and that she used the ways that she is able to visualize um the facilities that she's designing uh she she for instance is able to uh set uh like set a conveyor belt going in her mind and then check back later to see where the points of where are in the design, you know, so she can like um, kind of predict what's going to happen in a way that a non-autistic person would not be able to do. Uh, and she also empathizes very deeply with animals. And because she designs livestock facilities, she's able to kind of figure out how the animals would feel at various points in the uh, process. Um and these are all things that she's not doing in spite of their autism. It's not a story of her heroically overcoming her autism. It's a story of her learning how to leverage the gifts that her autism gives her uh, to, in order to succeed in her career. Great. Well, if you want to hear more about this uh, depth of information about neurodiversity, um, the future of our society, perhaps, uh, definitely a more compassionate way to look at the world, uh, you'll have to pick up uh, Steve's book, uh, Neurotribes. And it just came out in paperback, by the way, so it's even cheap. <laughs> yeah. Great. Yeah. Easier, easier to lug around. <laughs> Well, this is the section of our show that we call the Grokatron 5000. Um, basically, we're trying to encourage people to listen to our radio program. And so, uh, Steve, you're going to be put on the spot here. I'm going to ask you a series of multiple choice questions. And uh, if you get three of them correct, we're going to give away a copy of your book to a listener of our radio show. Okay. So uh, because your book was uh, you know, a great sort of... Uh, uh, exploration into the history of autism and from it I learned so much about how science changes over time. Uh, I figured I'd pick out some interesting questions about uh, you know old science that's being debunked or uh, has changed over time. Sure. Uh, are you ready to play? Yeah. <laughs> I'm a little scared because <laughs> okay. I, you know I didn't know this was coming so I suddenly feel like 
my teacher is giving me a pop quiz, you know. So I, I may totally <laughs> fail, but we'll see. Hey, that's okay. It's just for fun. Yeah, yeah. Um, all right. So in the history of medicine, uh, there was a theoretical system of humors that was developed to describe diseases as imbalances of our four bodily fluids. I mean, we don't think of this anymore, but um, those fluids were things like blood, yellow bile, black bile, and which other bodily fluid? Oh, boy. Was it Jeez. Okay. A, yeah. phlegm, B, stomach acid, C, DNA, or D, tears? Phlegm. Phlegm. Yeah. Correct. Yep. The four, the four humors. Yep. Blood, yellow bile, black bile, and phlegm. This was like a medieval thing. And, and, and now we just have to figure out which form of bile afflicts Donald Trump. <laughs> <laughs> oh, for sure. Actually, both bottles I think were made up. <laughs> okay, great. That's one correct. Yep. Uh, moving on to the second question. Um, what 1809 medical theory formalized by Franz Joseph Gall measures areas of the human skull to infer the strengths and weaknesses of an individual's mind? because it was thought that like brains and, and skulls had some relation. Is it A, phonology, B, phlebotomy, C, phrenology, or D, osteology? It's phrenology. And, um, Correct. Yes, thank you. And let me tell you an interesting thing. Um, oh, good. You have a Walt Whitman, the great American poet, was actually a huge fan of phrenology. And he talked a lot about <laughs> adhesiveness, which was um, sort of non-sexual liking between men, really. Uh, and, uh, I mean, he was gay, but he also knew that men could <laughs> like each other a lot without, you know, wanting to go to bed with them. And adhesiveness yeah. was like one of those lumps in the skull, you know. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you could measure yep. the adhesion. <laughs> <clears throat> Uh, yeah, we know that's not correct anymore. Right. So that's we moved yeah. on. <laughs> um, okay, so the next one is, uh, this is a, a more current issue, I suppose. Uh, what scientist who worked with Francis Crick to determine the structure of DNA also infamously stepped down from a Cold Spring Harbor post because of comments about linkages between intelligence and genetics? Oh, you're just asking me. Was it? Yeah. Oh, no, no, sorry. Was it A, Rosalind Franklin, B, Maurice Wilkins, C, James Watson, or D, Craig Venter? Okay, was it James Watson? It was It was James Watson. Yeah, All right, but correct. here's the thing. You should also tell yep. the story of Rosalind Franklin, because she was interesting, too. Um, yeah. yeah. I mean... She's uh, one of those scientists, right, who worked with Francis Crick. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and who may have had, although I think she, you know, she's sometimes presented as like the woman who discovered the helical structure of DNA. Nobody gave her credit. Actually, I, I, an autistic person recently who's obsessed with the discovery of DNA recently told me, well, but she actually said that, no, it wasn't the, the helix. So she didn't get as screwed as people think, you know. But, uh, mm. but anyway, but yeah, no, that's yeah. a fascinating story. Um, apparently, either Crick or Watson also credited LSD 
with a flash of uh, inspiration about the double helix, but I'd have to double check that. <laughs> it's a hell of a story. <laughs> <laughs> well, excellent. Um, three Crescents, correct. We can give away your book. Um, thanks for joining us, Steve. Thank <laughs> um, you. It was really good to hear from you. Great. Thanks a lot, buddy. <laughs>